When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But one thing that's really important is if you're going to leave that note and say you're going to Chesler Park, don't go to Druid. <laughs> go to Chesler Park. So if you're going to leave a note or you're going to tell someone where you're going, don't change your plans. It almost seems like maybe you've been following us. <laughs> this is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. With national park visitation skyrocketing, more people are taking to the trails. And the incidence of hikers needing to be rescued is increasing. Today, we're talking about hiking safety, and we're thrilled to have a special guest on our show, law enforcement ranger Sarah Shoemaker out of Canyonlands National Park. Sarah is going to be sharing some important tips about how to stay safe on the trails. We'll also be discussing things you'll want to consider before you start hiking, what you should have with you during the hike, and what you should be aware of while you're hiking. A lot of really important information coming up next. Okay, so much of our content is about hiking because that's the thing we do in public lands the most. We love we love hiking. That is one of our favorite things to do. And it's a favorite thing of a lot of national park visitors. And you know what I think is great, Matt? So many people are not just starting to visit the national parks, but they're starting to hike. They're starting to want to get out on the trails, see more of the park than they can from their cars and the overlooks. And I think that's fantastic. Yes, so much of the beauty and the experience of these public lands, national parks, is getting away from the parking lot, getting into the park. And that's when you really start to experience the park. So it's great that people are hiking more. However, you know, hiking is different than walking, <laughs> and there is a lot more to know about than just what to carry in your backpack. So we're going to be talking about some of those things today, and hopefully everyone, beginners to experienced hikers, will pick up a tip or two. That's right, and we wanted to say that we did an entire episode on the 10 Essentials, which is episode number 38. We're going to go over the list fairly briefly here. And if you want more detail, you can go to episode 38 and listen to that episode. Right. As you listen to this list, you might wonder why you need all of these things in your backpack if you're going on, let's say, a three to five mile hike, a day hike. But this list 
it takes into account the possibility of something going wrong, something like you get lost and you have to spend the night outside. All right, so briefly, we will run down the list. Number one is navigation. Where are you going? You should absolutely have a paper map as well as any electronic maps you have, like a GPS, like the Gaia app we talk about, and uh, hopefully a compass as well. Right. Uh, I know that uh, we certainly rely on our electronic maps a lot, our Gaia GPS app on our phones, but phones lose battery. Uh, you could drop them. So you, you need a backup. Most paper maps have a north arrow on it. So if you have a compass, you can then figure out how to orient that map if you get lost with the compass and the paper map. Right. Okay, number two, extremely, extremely important hydration, meaning most likely water. We also take a water filter for emergencies. Now, you're not always hiking in places where there are streams and rivers that you can fill up, but we still usually have a water filter with us. And a good thing to carry with you is Life Straw. They're inexpensive. You can get them on Amazon. And uh, that's, a, that's a good thing to just always have in your pack. All right. Number three, nutrition. And that would be food. Uh, you know, maybe you need lunch in your pack, salty snacks, food items that won't spoil if you're hiking all day in hot weather and the sun is beating down on your pack. That's right. We always take snacks. I always like to eat more the day before, the week before, just eat as much as I possibly can for maybe two weeks. <laughs> before a hike and and then I'm I'm usually good. Have an extra cushion of Ex- belly fat. Exactly. <laughs> All right, number four, rain gear and some kind of insulation because the weather can change quickly. So you definitely want to be protected from the elements. Yep, I always bring an extra shirt. A lot of times we hike to a destination where I'm sweaty when we get to the top. It's nice to have a dry shirt afterwards. All right, number five is a fire starter. You always want to have some kind of waterproof matches in a watertight container. That's right. And you should uh, test these every now and then to make sure they're okay. A lot of the times the matches don't last forever. All right. Number six is a first aid kit. There are a lot of small first aid kits. There are hiker first aid kits that don't take up a lot of room in your pack. That's right. The next thing to carry is a knife or some kind of a multi-tool. These days they make all sorts of multi-tools with knife, screwdriver, scissors, what have you. And uh, it's, it's always good to have one of those with you in your back. Number eight is so, so important, illumination. Now that could be a headlamp or a flashlight plus extra batteries. I cannot tell you how many times I've pulled out my headlamp and it has been, the batteries have been dead and Matt whips out extra batteries from his back and saves me. <laughs> That's right. I always carry two headlamps. We use inexpensive headlamps uh, and I carry extra batteries. And if that headlamp's been in your backpack for a long time, Open the battery compartment to look at it because sometimes those batteries corrode. So just double check that it's working before you head out. One tip also, a lot of people now on their phones have a flashlight mode. Do not rely on your phone's flashlight. It's just not strong enough to see very far. And if you are searching for the next Karen on a trail to guide you, you certainly won't be able to see it from your little iPhone flashlight. It's always good to have multiple sources of light. Right. Okay, number nine is sun protection. And this is key even in the winter. So we're talking sunscreen, sunglasses, and don't forget to get a chapstick with some kind of SPF. And I would consider a hat also sun protection so that your scalp does not get sunburned as well. Yeah, and uh, number 10 is some kind of a shelter, uh, emergency tarps or space blankets. I, I take a little emergency bivy sack, which is made out of that space blanket material. 
Uh, these things are inexpensive. They're lightweight. Everyone should have one. Also, check these every now and then because after a year or so, they can get flaky. So keep a fresh one with you. And number 11 is something that we have added to the list of 10 essentials. And this is to protect the environment and not so much you. And this is how are you going to dispose of your bodily functions, mainly poop. So they make human waste bags, including WAG bags. Matt, I finally figured out what WAG stands for. Yeah, what does it stand for, Karen? (laughs) Waste alleviation and gelling bags. But these are a crucial part of recreating responsibly. So we have one that's called Toilet to Go that we bought in Arches National Park. Yeah, and they make other uh, kinds. You can get them on Amazon. They're fairly inexpensive. And with this item and really all the items on on the list, it's not always just for you. It could be that somebody you're with needs one of these items or somebody you run across on the trail. So it's good to have all of these things for you and for your fellow hikers. All right. So before we play our interview with Sarah, we also wanted to talk briefly about some beginner hiking mistakes that people frequently make. This list comes from the Appalachian Mountain Club. I'm just wondering if the Appalachian Mountain Club uh, read our books and came up with this list based on all the things that we did when we went to all the national parks, because it looks familiar. (laughs) I think that's highly likely. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Number one is planning a hike that is too ambitious for you. You want to start out small and work your way up and be sure to check the elevation gain of the hike because that's key as well as as the distance. And there should be a thought running through the back of your head as you're hiking that says, do I have enough energy to get back? Right. Right. And even though you may be feeling fine where you're at, just know that you have to repeat the rest of that trail to get back. And so sometimes... You should turn around even though you still have energy left. Absolutely. Now, when we started our journey to visit all the national parks, you know, we had done some hiking here in Washington State, so we weren't necessarily beginners, but we also weren't super strong hikers. So we looked for five-mile round-trip hikes in the national parks. That's what we did during those two years. But then we worked our way up. We became more comfortable, and now we look for 10-mile hikes. That's what's comfortable for us. So that is what's key, you know, Start with what you're comfortable with, what you know you can do, and then as you become a more experienced hiker, you work your way up to longer hikes and maybe more steeper, more challenging hikes. Okay, another common mistake that beginner hikers make is not checking the weather before you head out on a hike. Uh, There can be thunderstorms, excessive heat, there can be snow on the trail or snow falling from the sky. Know the weather that you're hiking into. Now, the third thing they list is wearing the wrong clothing or footwear. You know, we see a lot of people heading out in flip-flops. And, you know, hey, if that's what somebody's comfortable hiking in, then that's up to them. That's not something we would recommend. We would recommend good, sturdy shoes with some ankle support and a grippy bottom, a grippy sole, so that if you have to be doing any rock scrambling, you will have the right footwear. You know, a lot of these trails, they're kind of difficult to to walk on because a lot of rocks, roots, uh, loose dirt. You should have some shoes that, that you can enjoy hiking in. And the fourth mistake they list is very self-explanatory, not bringing enough food and water. Always, always bring more water than you think you will need. Yeah. Also, 
Uh, not learning how to use your important gear. This is really important. If, For instance, if you think you're going to take the Gaia GPS application on your phone with you, but you've never opened it and you don't know how to use it, it's really not going to do you much good. So practice these things ahead of time. It goes really for all of the items we listed Right. Now, we have added three more things um, based on our experience. And one is one mistake a lot of beginner hikers do is they don't do any research about the hike ahead of time. We cannot tell you how many times we've come across a hiker on a trail. You know, they're sitting down, they're exhausted, and they tell us, well, I didn't know it had fill in the blank. It had stream crossings. It had, you know, major elevation gain. It had exposed cliff faces. So research, research, research. Yeah. And there are plenty of resources for doing this. You can go to all trails online. You can look up the, the trail that you're uh, planning to hike. You can go to the user notes mm-hmm. and those are especially useful. Uh, the most recent hiker notes they will tell you if there's a big tree down or a certain area is flooded. So there, it's easy to do the research on a hike. All right. Another one is not knowing or not being aware of what time the sun is going to set that day. For instance, if you are hiking in the winter, we were in Utah in November, the sun was setting at 4.30 in the afternoon. You absolutely want to know this and make sure that you can complete your hike and you can get back to your car before it gets dark. Yeah, and this is related to the taking a source of light, headlamp or flashlight with you. And the last thing we wanted to mention is in the winter, when you're hiking in any mountainous area, make sure you are aware of the potential for avalanche danger because it's every everywhere in the mountains. We see on Instagram people who live in the Pacific Northwest and they are hiking summer trails in the winter and it's beautiful and they're telling people to go there, but the avalanche danger is huge. And I think a lot of people are unaware of that. Yeah. And this is a real danger. People die every year in avalanches. Uh, It's a tragedy and it's something that can be avoided. All right. And, you know, we we feel qualified to talk about all this because we have made so many mistakes ourselves. Uh, One of the biggest lessons we've learned over the last 14 years or so of exploring um, our public lands is that things can go very wrong on a hike, even when you're prepared and especially when you're not prepared. People make mistakes. They get in over their heads because situations can arise that they weren't prepared for or they don't even know could happen that they're not expecting. Right. And a lot of times people get excited because they're traveling to a national park. It might be the only time they think they're ever going to visit that. They want to get out there and and hike all these trails uh, that they've been thinking about. But it's important not to get in over your head. So there are a couple of situations where we did exactly that. So we wanted to mention some of the hikes where we found ourselves in precarious situations situations where the outcome could have been really bad. There were two hikes. One was the Zion East Rim Trail and one was the Chesler Park Joint Trail where we did not have enough water. It was summer, it was brutally hot, and we honestly did not think we were going to make it back to our truck without having, you know, a heat-related incident. And in Alaska, when we were hiking the Chilkoot Trail, uh, we came across a uh, what was on the map a small creek that turned into a raging river because we were in a thunderstorm. And so we just, we had to make a new plan because 
that creek was not crossable when we got there. It was instant death. If you would have if you would have waded into this raging river, that would have been it. Uh, then there was another time in Teddy Roosevelt. We were on, on a trail, and we were almost back. It was a loop trail. There was a massive herd of bison, like 200 bison, blocking our trail as a storm was rolling in and as it was getting dark. And when you come across an obstacle like that, even though you're in a hurry, the storm might be coming, you don't just charge right through a, a herd of bison. Well, not if you want to come out the other side with all your limbs attached. Right there. They would help you come out the other side, like throwing <laughs> you up into a tree or something like that. Uh, recently, we were stopped by another issue on a trail just outside of Yosemite in the high country. Again, this was a loop trail and we came upon a steep slope that we had to cross and it was covered in snow. It was a snowfield crossing. And because this was early September on this trip, we had not brought our microspikes. What happened was we had to turn around. We thought we were hiking a loop. We got three quarters of the way through the loop and had to turn around, which made the hike a lot longer than we had planned. And you know, the snow field was so sketchy. We we looked at it. We stood on it. Matt took two steps. If, if we would have slipped, we would have slid, I don't know what, a half a mile down a mountain. I mean, it just, it wasn't worth the risk. Then in Olympic National Park a couple years ago, we, we were on a backpacking trip. It was 40 degrees. It poured rain on us all day long. And we were really close to hypothermia by the time we finally got to our backcountry campsite. Yeah, that's the thing about rain in the mountains. It doesn't have to be like 20 degrees or 30 degrees with snow and sleet coming down on you. You can get very cold very quickly because the water just sucks the heat out of you. Opposite of that, in North Cascades National Park, we were backpacking. Um, it was a hot day in the 90s. We were in this burnout area with full sun, and I was starting to suffer from heat exhaustion at that point, and we were in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. And again, we were in the mountains thinking that it was just going to be uh, a cool weather and it wasn't. Last one we wanted to mention is we were snowshoeing at Mount Rainier in the winter with our friends. It was a bluebird sunny day. We were rounding a bend and all of a sudden, like instantly, we were in a whiteout. We couldn't see two feet in front of us. Which is super dangerous when you know that there are cliffs somewhere and you, you're not totally sure where. So that speaks to something we wanted to mention, and that is knowing when to turn around. Never be afraid to cut your hike short if the conditions are changing or if you're feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, again, I think people get excited um, to hike a trail because it's a long trip to get there. They might feel like they'll, they'll never get back there, but... Well, it is just not worth it to keep going if the conditions are bad. Right. We always ask ourselves, does the reward outweigh the risk? And for us, it is never does the reward outweigh the risk. It's not worth your life. So just listen to your gut and turn around if you're feeling uncomfortable. Uh, one more thing we wanted to mention is the um, is situational awareness. Yeah, be aware of your surroundings. That means other people. You know, if there's somebody somebody sketchy that's hiking close to you, just be aware of that. Animals. Also, with the weather, you can see, you can see a lot of the bad weather coming. Right. We were in Rocky Mountain National Park one time. We were running away from the thunderstorm, and there were other hikers hiking into it. Yeah, you know, sometimes it, it is a tough decision when your main goal of visiting a park is to do this one particular hike. But you know what? It's better to just... Uh, save it for another trip. 
All right. So that is enough from us. <laughs> we want to talk about Ranger Sarah Shoemaker for a minute um, and give you a rundown on her bio. Sarah's been in the National Park Service seasonally and permanently for over 22 years. Yes, and she has she has a wide range of experience. She got her start as a program assistant at Lake Powell in Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and then she went back for a stint as an interpretive ranger. After her law enforcement seasonal academy, she got her first law enforcement job at Arches National Park, where she worked seasonally three different times. Then she's also been at Pinnacles National Monument, She was the Condor law enforcement officer there. She's been at Natchez Trace Parkway, Lake Roosevelt, Hovenweep National Monument, Natural Bridges National Monument, Grand Canyon National Park, and now she is at Canyonlands National Park, the Needles District, where she has been for just about three years. So she's been all over the place. Yes. So she knows. She knows. And what a great, what a great variety of parks. Let's tell people how we met Sarah. (laughs) Well, we met Sarah because she emailed us years ago after she read our book, Dear Bob and Sue. She apparently liked it. And she's been personally responsible for selling hundreds of copies because she recommends it to park visitors. Yeah, and that's great. We really appreciate that, getting the Dear Bob and Sue word out. Yeah, and then uh, we've been emailing with her uh, off and on over the years, uh, sharing stories. Actually, she's given us a lot of good information over the years of questions we've had about the Park Service. Right. Whenever we have a question, we just email Sarah. So we finally got to meet Sarah in person this past November when we were in Utah and we visited the Needles District. Um, We went to the visitor center first. Uh, We met Sarah in her ranger uniform. Uh, We signed her Dear Bob and Sue book. And then she recommended a hike to us. Yeah, she recommended the Peekaboo Hike, which is about an 11-mile round-trip hike. It's a pretty strenuous hike. You know, we were joking with her before we went on this hike that we hoped she wouldn't have to come rescue us. But when we were actually on the hike, maybe about four miles in, we thought she would have to come and rescue us. Well, we turned around early because we didn't want her to come and rescue us. (laughs) Right. So as we were returning to the parking lot and we could see our truck, we could also see that there was a ranger vehicle there parked in front of our truck with its lights flashing. And for some reason, we thought we were in trouble. That's that's right. I think Sarah was looking for a reason to bust us. I think that was, but um, no, she was helping another uh, hiker that was in distress. And and this is one of the things that we learned is that the law enforcement rangers in a lot of these parks are also the EMTs. So we got to see her in action, which was uh, which was really interesting. And then when Sarah's shift was finished, we got to hang out with her for a while and spend some time with her. So it was great to finally meet her. And we had fun chatting with her last week about her work as a law enforcement ranger in Canyonlands and some hiking safety tips for visitors. Coming up, our conversation with Ranger Sarah Shoemaker. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right. We are sitting down with law enforcement ranger Sarah to talk about hiking safety. Uh, Unfortunately, we're not in the same room, but we are laptop to laptop. All right, Sarah, thank you for being with us today. 
You're welcome. My pleasure. We certainly appreciate your service and all the service of the Rangers. You guys do such a fantastic job, and I know that it's a challenge with millions of visitors every year to, to keep the law in order. So we were chatting with you earlier, Sarah, and we were just hoping that you would kind of explain to people. Matt and I didn't know exactly what a law enforcement ranger was when we started going to the parks. We thought a ranger was a ranger. So if you could just you know tell our listeners what uh, what's the difference between like a law enforcement ranger and an interpretive ranger that they might meet at the desk. Yeah. So... There's a lot of positions in the Park Service I don't think the visiting public sees a lot. And so I do still get that when I stop at the visitor center and stop and talk to people. They always wonder why I'm carrying a gun and how I'm different than the other ones. So primarily, we're the police of the park. We protect the people from the people, the resources from the people, and then the people from the resources. We have the ability to write tickets and make arrests, but a lot of the law enforcement are also your emergency medical technicians, the EMTs that come out. Some do wildland fire. Most of us are on the search and rescue team. Some are highly trained in technical rescue. And then the people that work the desk or give the programs are the interpretation park rangers, and they're interpreting the park. They're telling you the history of the park or about the resources, and they're more giving you information on how to do your hikes and where to go and issuing permits as needed. And I try to get my staff to also be able to do that because some visitors don't stop at the visitor center or they come in before eight o'clock when the visitor center is open. And so we're kind of their first people they might meet on that day. Can we go back to the writing of tickets and possibly putting people in jail? Because Karen has this fantasy that she's going to going to be a permanently off-duty ranger volunteer, but she wants the ability to write tickets and put people in jail. Can you just tell us how how likely that <laughs> scenario would be for Karen? Uh, that is pretty much not a likely scenario without her going to training, obviously. But I, I don't know if this is still true, but the Forest Service general rangers that worked the campground used to be able to write certain tickets, like unattended fire, things like that. So maybe she needs to... Go to the Forest Service realm. Go work for Smokey. <laughs> and, and just to be clear, you have to go to special training to be a law enforcement ranger, and you are a federal agent, correct? Yes. So I went to a seasonal academy. I did seasonal law enforcement from 2003 to 2007. And then in 2008, I was hired permanently at Pinnacles. And then I went to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, and then that training was followed by the Natchez Trace training. That gave me the powers to do the law enforcement aspect of my job. Um, and I am a federal law enforcement officer, yes. Yes. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I know you touched on a lot of different duties that you've done throughout the parks, but specifically to Canyonlands Needles District, what is it that you mostly do at Canyonlands, the, the bulk of your job there? Well, two years ago, I became the district ranger, 
which is primarily the supervisor of the Visitor and Resource Protection Division, which is the law enforcement division. So I supervise the law enforcement park rangers, and then I oversee day-to-day activities of the backcountry park rangers who are not law enforcement. So they cannot write tickets, but they do check the permits. They go out there and do preventative search and rescue. Um, They do a lot of overnight um, and cover a lot of ground. But I'm still out there responding to incidents from law enforcement to search and rescue to medical emergencies as well. If we if we ever need search and rescue services, if we mention your name, will people come more quickly or even maybe bring food with them? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so one of the reasons that we thought you would be such a great person to talk to about hiking safety is because when we have hiked in the Needles District at Canyonlands, in our opinion, uh, it's difficult hiking. The hikes all seem to be at least 10 miles, 10 to 15. A lot of the hiking, there is no trail. You're following the cairns. So in our opinion, this is a hard hiking area as opposed to somewhere like Zion or Bryce where you got a lot of people on the trails. So that- That, that wasn't a question? No, that, I do okay, have a that question was, that was in just, there. <laughs> just you talking. So do you think that the Needles District has more hiking challenges than some of the other parks that you've worked in? Hiking challenges with regard to the people or my job dealing with the people? Well, I yeah, yeah, situations that people get themselves into as far as you maybe getting caught on an exposed edge or just far away from the trailhead and, and unable to make it back because of dehydration, overheating, uh, things like that. I, given your experience with the other parks, is it uh, similar or or does it have special challenges? So, for the most part, the people that come to Canyonlands and the Needles District specifically, they are well-prepared, the majority, not all, but they are well-prepared for their hikes. They arrive early, they carry water, they have snacks, they know where they're going. We get a lot of repeat ones, and I feel like the ones that are well-prepared are the ones that help the other visitors that are not. But yeah, sure. Do we get incidents? Yeah. You know, that's like you're hiking with your friend, you're talking, you come to a junction and you're not really paying attention and you're just looking down, you don't read the sign and now you're on a completely different trail and you've ended up at the campground instead of the trailhead where your vehicle's parked at. It's just always good to have situational awareness, look up once in a while, stop, Take a look around, you know, when you come to the junction, read the signs so you know where to go and stuff like that. And as you know, in the Needles, there's very little connectivity. You know, there's a few places that you can climb high enough to get a signal out. But it's always like good to maybe also carry an inReach or some kind of device like that as well. Not only for your safety, but we've had numerous visitors hit that button for somebody else. But probably most importantly is that hikers need to just have some personal responsibility to be prepared for the hike they're doing and what they may encounter on that hike. Having those 10 essentials, having a way to contact someone 
you know, you find that sweet spot and are able to get a text out to someone that's not in the park, stuff like that. So when we first went to to the Needles District and we hiked uh, the Chesler Park Loop, this was before we had... Gaia. Gaia GPS on our phone. And we had the paper map. And so we got way back to... Like Devil's Kitchen area and didn't realize that's where we were. Yeah. And we had started at the campground instead of Elephant Hill. And so when we came to a sign and it said campground this way, but it was a different campground. (laughs) So we went that way and we hiked for, I don't know, maybe two miles. And Matt kept saying, we are going in the opposite direction of where we parked. And so we finally turned around. We had to practically run because we were losing daylight. We didn't have headlamps. So we made a whole bunch of mistakes on but that one. But weren't you disagreeing with me? I was disagreeing when, with when you. When I said we're going the wrong way and you said, how do you know where I'm going? And that- I mean, so we can see, we can see where people would get into trouble out there, you know, following the Cairns and maybe miss one. And um, I don't know, it seems a little tricky out there. Yeah, for sure. So a couple of things about the paper map. They're great for a couple of reasons, right? One, your batteries die on your Gaia or your GPS unit itself. Um, I'm thinking more of Gaia because, you know, when you're in the needles and you don't put your phone on airplane mode, the battery runs down a lot more because it's searching for that signal. But the thing about the paper map is it's really important to know how to use it. And I I feel uh, the reading of maps is not a thing that happens as much or people don't understand how to read them. So it's important to know how to actually use the map to your benefit. The thing with all trails, which is a user-based entry system. And so if you go to the all trails app, it may show a totally different way to go to Tressler Park. Like it may show you to go up Elephant Canyon towards Druid and then cut over on that little cutover. Right. And so I, I feel like not always following your GPS or your app, uh, map app is the best. Like just having the paper map is always the best. Yeah. The one thing that struck us when we were there hiking more in the maybe January, February, March timeframe is... You know, the days are short and even though you have a sunny day where it's warm and it feels like it's spring and it's great, the days are short. And on those slick rock trails where you're navigating by cairn, if you don't have a flashlight, a headlamp, some way to see the next cairn in the dark, you're pretty much hunkering down. Do you have many people out overnight? As in lost hikers? Yeah. Yeah. So we definitely come to that where we can't find someone. Um, and they end up having to spend the night out there. So if we have a lost hiker, we have this form that we fill out that's called a lost person questionnaire. And there's a ton of questions on there that we try to get from the reporting party. So not only who it is and the age, but like what they're wearing. What do they have with them? Do they have medical needs? You know, are they experienced? Are they in good health? And so on and so on. And when we fill out that form, like if you're in good health, that gives you a five. If you're in poor health, that gives you like a zero. And then at the end of that, we add up all those numbers and they give us a relative urgency of how we have to go about finding this person. 
So we may hike all night long trying to find a 12-year-old that's in a t-shirt and shorts, even in, you know, April, May, but we may suspend searching for a 30-year-old that's been here before, that has extra clothing with them, has food and water, is no medical issues. We may suspend it because hiking at night, as you know, even with a headlamp, is not safe. And so we want to keep ourselves safe so that we can do a better job the next morning. So we definitely have people that stay overnight because they got lost. Sometimes they just stay overnight because they got lost and we never know about it and they just get up in the morning and hike out. Other times we know about it. We do our best to attempt to find them as soon as we can. But due to safety concerns for us, we may suspend it until first light the next day. That makes perfect sense. So just a little a little side trail here. Uh, how are people, if they don't have a Garmin, they don't have, if they don't have an inReach and they can't find a signal, and, and as we've hiked through Canyonlands every now and then, you just, you get a signal. How are they typically notifying you? Is, there, is it other hikers that have come across them and they hike out and, and tell you? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes they have told, you know, like, hey, I'm going hiking in Canyonlands today and I should be home at five o'clock. And they don't show up at five. And so the friend that knew where they were going will call the county sheriff and then the sheriff will notify us and say, hey, you're looking for a blue Subaru with Oregon plates. So we'll go out and we'll drive the parking lots and check. And then if we do find the car... We know they're there somewhere. And then we'll go through that relative urgency form. Sometimes, though, uh, people just say, hey, I'm going to Canyonlands, right? Well, as you know, we have tons of trails. And just if you think about it from Elephant Hill, there's numerous trails you can do just from there, right? You can go to Druid or the Joint Trail or Chesler. So that's kind of really where the relative urgency form comes in, that determines how we respond to that incident. A lot of times, you know, someone says, oh, I'm going to hike the Big Spring Wooden Shoe Loop. And, you know, they think it's going to take them five hours, but it ends up taking them seven. And they're just late getting out and calling. That is the majority of our overdue. And then the other way we kind of know is every day we're pretty aware of what vehicles are parked where and which of those cars have backcountry permits. And so if a car is there the next day that didn't have a backcountry permit that we're aware of, then we start to do a little more digging into that. And, you know, it may just be that they didn't get a backcountry permit or they're truly lost out there. And we have to kind of make a judgment call of, you know, do we go searching for them? How are we going to search? The other thing is, is um, we get a lot of people that will leave a note in their car, especially uh, single hikers, you know, you're hiking alone. They'll leave a note in their car and be like, I'm going to Chesler Park. I'll be out at five o'clock. So that helps. But one thing that's really important is if you're going to leave that note and say you're going to Chesler Park, don't go to Druid. <laughs> go to Chesler Park. So if you're going to leave a note or you're going to tell someone where you're going, 
don't change your plans. It almost seems like maybe you've been following us. <laughs> around the park we didn't leave a note in our truck when we were there sarah sorry we didn't think about that but that brings up a a, a fantastic point beyond the 10 essentials which is tell somebody where you're going when you expect to come back or or leave a note Be, be specific so i was curious obviously like like you just said that's a lot of ground to cover do you have at all access to a helicopter whether it's for search and rescue or if you found someone who's injured way out there to bring them you know to take them to a hospital do you have that at all so we're not like the grand canyon that has a helicopter in the park 24/7 but we if we needed something like that We would contact the San Juan County dispatch and we would request a helicopter. Like for instance, let's say we have someone that's at Druid Arch with a broken leg and we request a helicopter and they're available. So they got to be available to come out. It's going to take them, uh, our helicopter usually comes out of Moab, Utah, and it will take them roughly 30 minutes to get to that patient. So sometimes it's quicker to have the helicopter. They also have helped with searching for people before. Um, But sometimes, depending on how long the search goes, the Department of Public Safety, the Utah Department of Public Safety helicopter is um, asked to respond. They have like night vision and um, the heat seeking Okay, now Stop, we're talking. So. See, Karen's fantasy <laughs> is she wants to write tickets, maybe put people in jail. I have the helicopter. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm flying the helicopter. I'll, I'll go out, circle them, assess what's going on. If they look like they're fine, I'd maybe shout down words of encouragement and go back. Uh, but no, I that, I think we both need some more training is what may, I think. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> We did have, I guess one story was um, we had this couple that was hiking off trail and they were trying to climb up to get a better view for a photo. And the wife climbed up fine. Her husband climbed up behind her and he pulled on the rock and the rock came off and landed on him breaking his hip. It was a pretty significant rock. And she actually climbed down and lifted the rock off him enough so he could scoot out from under it. In that one, we called the helicopter, and the helicopter beat us to the patient. And then when we arrived on scene, we had to help carry the patient to the helicopter. That was probably like the craziest, just considering how big the boulder was that the person, and Karen, she was probably your size, lifted this rock off like pure adrenaline. Yeah, I'm a goner if that happens. Karen is in Monticello with you having burritos. And oh, that's right. Where's Matt? That's why I came and got Sarah. Yeah. Uh. Probably my craziest rescue was actually in the fiery furnace at Arches National Park. Oh, Tell us about that. We wonder yeah. if anyone actually had, has had to be rescued in there. It seems like they will. Oh, yeah. Many, many times. So you guys have been in there, right? Uh-huh. By yourselves or with yes. a tour? Both, with a, with a oh, ranger okay. and by ourselves. Okay. So we get this call that um, someone is in need of help, that they've fallen 
in the fired furnace and that one of the party, it was a group of like eight, eight friends. One of the party will meet me and take me back to the, to the patient. So I get in the parking lot and I look out and there's this guy up on this rock and he's waving at me and I'm like, okay, I have a visual of him. You know, I'll hike to him. So I get to him, but the patient is not with him. That's where he had to hike out to, to get self-service. And so we pretty much hiked through the fiery furnace. You know, it's high canyon walls, it's slot canyons, it's a maze in there. And we hiked pretty much all the way to the north end of the fiery furnace to where I got to the patient. And then I had to direct that guy to go back out and get the rest of my rescuers that were coming because, you know, I had to stay with the patient at this point. So he had fallen and um, taken a pretty good header. Any question I asked him, he couldn't really respond. And then about every five minutes, he would ask us what day it was. So once all the rescuers finally got there, we had to put him in a litter, secure some ropes to him just for safety, and carry him out the north end to um, a suitable landing zone. And, you know, he was flown, I'm pretty sure he was flown directly to Salt Lake City. He had a pretty major concussion. But as you know, that it's just a maze in there, right? So I'm thinking, oh, this guy's pretty close to the trailhead. We'll be fine. (laughs) But it was probably a good two to three hour rescue to get him out of there. Wow. That is not the place you'd want to have that happen for sure. No, definitely not. Okay. I I have a couple more questions about Canyonlands. I think also it seems like one of the issues that you might face there is the extreme weather. So when we, we took some friends of ours, we were there in July and we wanted to hike the Chesler Park Joint Trail Loop. And we had looked at the forecast to make sure it wasn't going to be, you know, 103. But the forecast that came up on our phones before we left uh, Monticello was for a different town and not for back there. So it said it was going to be 85 degrees. We thought, great, that's fine. We took the recommended however many gallons of water. We went back. We almost didn't make it back to our oh, no. truck. It, it got up to 103. We ran out of water about two miles before we were back to our truck. All four of us thought this is going to be the end of us. Right. We, it was a red flag day. I thought it said red letter day, which is a whole different thing. But it was a red flag day. And <laughs> so specifically, I mean, do you see, you know, heat stroke slash not enough water, you know, those kind of issues out there, especially in the summer? So we definitely have those, yes. Heat stroke is pretty much, uh, if you get a heat stroke, you're, you're done. You're probably not making it. Um, that's the last, that's the end. So you have like heat exhaustion, other heat related stuff before you get to heat stroke. We have definitely had a heat stroke patient that I actually dealt with like in my first month of working at Canyonlands. Um, but Again, for the majority of our people are well well prepared for that, but you should definitely have like a gallon each. You should have a gallon, Matt should have a gallon. You know, you should have enough water. You shouldn't like share water. Everybody should have their own 10 essentials because if if you have to separate, please don't ever do that. But if you had to, like if Matt had to go and get help or vice versa, you still want to have extra clothes with you, food, water, etc. And you're right. A lot of times, even though we have that big sign that says, you know, heat kills, carry this much water, we get those visitors that that don't. 
The other thing we get is the people that do bring enough water, but they ration it too much. And so they start having heat problems because of that, because they're not drinking enough water. And then the other important thing is to eat snacks, specifically salty snacks, because if you're just drinking, 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 you're not replenishing any of your salt or electrolytes. And so it's called hyponeutrinia. And that happens quite a bit with related heat instances. Yeah, we have heard that people, especially in the Grand Canyon, they're so afraid of dehydration is that they go overboard the other direction and the symptoms look very similar. Right. Yeah. Do you I, get do you get a lot of uh, thunderstorms in the Canyonlands? Um, usually just during monsoon season. We definitely get lightning and thunder and and the trails, you know, they don't call it slick rock for nothing. So like the slot canyons can get, you know, ankle deep water in it because it really doesn't have anywhere to drain off to. Like I'm thinking on the Chesler Park Trail, you know, that little like it's just a short. Yeah, it looks like the joint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just that little, I mean, I've had to hike through there before in like, you know, ankle deep water um, just because it doesn't have anywhere to go off to. But besides the heat, we've never really had, since I've been here, injuries from weather. Yeah, that's, that's kind of surprising because we did the um, we did Druid Arch in March and it was snowing on us. Oh, it snowed that, on us. That one ladder that you have to go up and then you're on top of that big rock. It, it was, it was icy. snowing. It was yeah. icy. It was yeah. like, yeah. Was lo- but it was, yeah, it, it was also fun at the same time. It was, it was beautiful out there in the snow, but yeah. I don't know. Needles District to me is just is like one one big danger zone. <laughs> yeah, but it is one of our favorite places. Oh yeah, we love it. <laughs> so one thing we wanted to talk to you about is it seems like, and this has happened to us before, but you you go a long distance to get to a park, and you have this dream hike. And for us, it was we are going to make it to the Chesler Park, the Joint Trail part of it, if it kills us. And you know, it almost did twice. So. I think a lot of people, they won't turn around because they think this is their only chance to do it. They're not uh, maybe aware of that they're too tired or that they are running out of water. So I, if you could just speak to the um, benefits of being self-aware enough to cut, cut it short and turn the heck around. Yeah. So that's where I talked earlier about hikers need to have some personal responsibility while they're out there. You know, and a lot of times during the busy season, which for us are the shoulder season, so to speak, like spring and fall, we do get hikers in the summer. And during that time, we usually have someone stationed, you know, at the trailhead, the preventative search and rescue, we call it PSAR, that kind of uh, evaluate people going out and be like, how much water do you have? Do you have food? Where are you going? You know, it's 1 p.m. You probably shouldn't hike to Druid at this point. Or, you know, just go until you get tired and then turn around. I would say just having that personal awareness about you that you may not be able to make it to where you wanted to go that day and make the right decision to turn around so you don't have to become rescued or you know, a statistics. Yeah, that's such good advice. I think for us, we've gotten a lot smarter now and we know kind of when we need to turn around. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, and it's not just, oh, it's only another mile. I can make it a mile to get there. It's the whole, then you've got to turn around and and get yourself back. That's what we always think. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, maybe don't think that through quite (laughs) clearly enough, and they push themselves too much. But, you know, I keep seeing on Instagram these um, outdoor influencers, but they're like, push yourself, get out of your comfort zone. And I think, oh, God. Hey, the rangers will come rescue you. <laughs> they just, they'll come get you. Yeah. So um, I definitely understand that. I mean, um, I've been on that trail and just think, man, I bet just around the corner is another beautiful view. If we just go around the next corner and then we get to that corner, right? And there's got to be something around the next corner. And so I understand that. Like we have a lot of first time hikers that come there and a lot of questions are like, are there heights, you know, are there ladders or this, I, I'm not comfortable with heights. So we try to like, when they come into the visitor center, we try to evaluate their skills, so to speak, the best we can, if that makes sense. And then direct them to the hikes that may be better for them. That explains a lot <laughs> to our visitor center visits. Okay. We yeah. get a lot of nature walk suggestions. I'm yeah, just saying. I, I was just going to ask you that, Sarah. So a lot of the rangers, they will literally look at us and because of our age, they'll say, well, there's a nice nature walk out the back that's, you know, three quarters of a mile. And so, I mean, like, how do you assess that? Because obviously there's older, strong hikers, there's younger, new hikers who don't know, you know, much about hiking. So do you just ask some key questions? Yeah. So some key questions would be, uh, where are you from? Right. You're from the coast. Are you at sea level? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you walk four miles a day in your neighborhood that's flat. And now you're at 4,500 feet. And you want to do 10 miles over hills, over uneven terrain. You know, I don't think Druid is the right hike for you. But why don't you hike in two miles on the Chesler Park Trail? You get a good view of the needles. And if you're comfortable with going further, do. We try to ask those questions. We try to ask questions like, how far do you usually hike? Where do you hike? oh, I walk around my neighborhood is way different than, you know, I go to Mount Rainier every weekend and I hike there. We used to see um, back, well, like in 2010, when we went to Rocky Mountain National Park and we did a hike, there was literally a ranger standing at the trailhead. And as we walked past him, you know, he said hello and we chatted with him. And he said he was there specifically to look at hikers, make sure they weren't wearing flip-flops, make sure they had a backpack, make sure they had water, which is fantastic. But I think, I mean, maybe now that's like a luxury that a lot of parks just can't can't afford to do to have you know a ranger stationed at every trailhead to, to do that yeah we do try to have a ranger out there whether it's a backcountry ranger that's maybe at the junction of a trail so like a good junction would be elephant canyon we ask them those same questions but we also during the summer when it's too hot for us to hike our backcountry rangers will actually post up at trailheads or just do short hikes. Um, what we call that is preventative search and rescue. So we're trying to prevent someone from 
needing to be rescued later on in the day. Okay, I have maybe one last question, unless you have any more. I see a lot on, we're on some uh, forums, hiking forums in Washington on Facebook, and people ask questions and things. One, I think one of the top questions is, especially for younger people um, in their, maybe in their 20s and 30s starting out, they want to hike, they want to learn how to hike, but they don't have anyone to go with. So in your opinion, especially in the Needles District, do you think it's safe to hike alone? I, I do feel like it is safe to hike alone. Um, as we've already talked about, let someone know where you're going, stay on the trail you said you were going on, um, you know, carry those 10 essentials, carry a way to contact someone. But I think it's safe. We don't have the grizzly bears. <laughs> uh, so, but again, it's going back to knowing your limits as you're starting out. We suggest uh, a lot of the parks have ranger-led hikes. Uh, do you guys have that at Canyonlands? Mm-hmm. Do you have um, we just don't have at this time the visitation. We have tried to do the Cape Spring guided hike, but they would have like one or two people show up because our visitation for short hikes is kind of sporadic. Whereas the majority of people coming to the needles are hiking six miles or longer. We just don't have like a hundred people say at the windows section at any given time. We have two here and then 30 minutes later, two there. And so they have tried them and I think they will, you know, in the future, try different ones. But yeah, going on a guided hike is a great way to get started. And then there's also uh, like hiking groups, right? Tours, you can go, you know, people will take you backpacking. There's companies that go as a group and take people backpacking. Especially probably out of Moab, you probably find a guide pretty easily. It seems like Moab has a guide for everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to say um, that we can, if we respond and have to rescue someone, I've never done it, but we can write a citation to them for creating a dangerous situation. Like, for instance, say one of our staff talked to them, you know, and said, you should probably only do the Slick Rock Trail or something. And they go ahead and do Druid Arch. And then we got to go out there and rescue them at 2 p.m. July 5th in 106 degree. That's putting our lives at risk as well, even though we're trained to do that. And so we could write the citation. We've ne- I've never done it personally, but we could. Yeah. When we stayed down at Phantom Ranch, uh, there was a ranger down there and she did, uh, she had a ranger talk and we were listening to her and she was, um, she was pretty vocal about how angry she gets when hikers put themselves in danger because she then has to go hike and rescue them and it puts her life in danger. And she she was making a very, very strong point um, that really hit home because I think a lot of hikers don't even consider that part of it, right? Yeah. They don't consider the rescuers who have to come and save them when they do something that uh, that they shouldn't have done, that they're not prepared to do. Yeah. The other thing is just recently we had in 72 hours, we had five search and rescues of some sort. Um, And that, that drains us as resources to go rescue further. Right. So that's something to take into consideration is, 
I need to be rescued, but maybe the night before someone else had to be rescued and it's draining us physically to provide the best help sometimes. So, and that, that's where we like reach out to our partners and at Canyonlands, we're part of the Southeast Utah group. So that encompasses all of Canyonlands, arches, Hovenweep, natural bridges. And so oftentimes if we have a big search or a multi-day search, actually people from the Moab area will come down and assist. But we also um, work pretty closely with San Juan County, Utah, ambulance and search and rescue teams as well. Um, We rely on them if we're short-staffed and don't have enough people to help out. That's good to know you have a big team like that. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of hikers, I've seen people ask questions too about, especially in the Grand Canyon when the helicopter has to come in. But do you know, and maybe you can't even answer this, but do you know if rescued hikers are sometimes billed for those services then? I think it's park by park. I want to say I don't think the Grand Canyon people are. So let's say the helicopter removed someone and then that person was transported to like a medical plane, like in Tucson, then they're billed for that. Yeah. What if you hit a cow while you're driving to or from the park? The cow's in the road, you hit the cow, just wondering, you have to pay for the cow? Yeah, in the state of Utah, it's open range and you are paying for the cow. Um, And I just learned recently is if it's a female cow, you pay for her her calving. So if she has five more years of having calves, then you pay for six cows. Wow. So it could be pretty spendy. Yeah, (laughs) they're not cheap because we just buy little parts of the cow at the grocery (laughs) store. And that's pretty expensive. We saw all the signs, the warning signs, open range, you know, that kind of thing. Do you know, have people hit a cow along that stretch? Oh, yeah. So in the summertime, those cows are up in the Bajos, right? Because it's cooler up there. And uh, the first day they brought them down to the lowlands, a cow was hit. But you get to keep the cow. You don't get to keep the meat, but you definitely pay for it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've... I think we've probably come to the end. We're like scraping the barrel, Karen. I know. This has been so interesting. <laughs> I learned I learned a lot. I did not yeah, know some of yeah. the things that you had mentioned there. So always good to talk to you, Sarah. It was fun. Um, it was fun to see you in action when we came out in November because um, you were enforcing the law. You were taking care of business. We, we got the entire. Oh, that, that guy was, uh, he was having. Well, it wasn't super hot there, but he was, you know, hadn't been drinking enough water and hadn't been eating at all. So, and he had been sick the night before and wasn't feeling good, but probably shouldn't have went on the hike anyways. Luckily for us, his friends got him to the trail because we were pretty sure we were going to have to litter him out because he couldn't even walk or stand up. Wow. It's kind of crazy. That is crazy. That's a long way to be carrying a, a litter with a, a body on it. Yeah, we do. The litter has a wheel on it. Um, oh, we've seen so, one of those on the trail. Yeah. That's right. Whole nother yeah. story. But yeah, we've seen that where they yes. can I forgot about connect that. the one wheel. But like, for instance, in the fiery furnace, when we had to rescue that guy, we had to do a lot of lifting until we got to an area where we could actually put the wheel on. So you need 
a lot of people. Usually for a litter carryout, we do six plus people, depending on how far it is. You know, if we're five miles out, we're going to want more than six people because trying to wheel and lift and move and takes a lot of people to rescue someone. Oh, I bet. Especially that that sketchy hike you sent us on the last time. <laughs> what? Yeah, we loved it. We loved it. We, had, mean, we had the sense to turn around before we got to the end. There was so much scrambling. I don't even know how you could put yeah. the wheel down. No, I mean, it couldn't. was all climbing no. up Slick Rock down. Yeah. Like in those instances, we definitely use ropes. And the other thing is, is we do a lot of like leapfrogging. So we hand it to people and then people move in front and hand it again. People move in front and hand it again. Like at Devil's Garden out by Double O Arch, you know, you walk on that fin, right? Yes. We have to get the litter up on the fin, across the fin, and then down the fin. So a lot of hand over hand kind of things on that. Wow. What an interesting job you have, Sarah. It definitely is. Yeah. And I work in some beautiful places, right? Right. Never a dull moment. Every day must be completely different from the day before. It definitely is because one, the sun comes up in a different place every day. But two, for the most part, our visitors every day, you know, different visitors, different things happen. So it is different every day. And that's what's nice about it. Well, we certainly appreciate your effort, all the great work you do, the dedication. I know it's its hard work. And as visitors, we appreciate it. And, and we feel more secure knowing that there's a team of people there. We just hope you never have to come out and rescue us if we're in the needles because we know we'll hear about we, it. We know we'll hear oh, about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Way. And for the rest <laughs> of our life. <laughs> All right, Sarah, thank you so much for chatting with us. You bet. All right, so it was great to talk to Sarah. And, you know, Matt and I learned a few things as we were um, listening to her. And one thing that we never do, which we should do, is we never tell people when we're going on a hike, nor do we leave a note in, um, in our car. Yeah, I like that tip. We should do that. Yeah, and I think my favorite... My favorite thing that she said, uh, a really great point, was the one about personal responsibility. And, you know, I think this kind of sums it up just in a general way, that it's every hiker's responsibility to be equipped for a safe hike, to have their own backpack with their own supplies, and it's every hiker's responsibility to research the hike, assess their ability to do the hike, check the weather forecast ahead of time, etc., Yeah, it's great if there are other hikers out there that can help you if you get in distress or you can help them, Uh, but you should be prepared to take care of yourself. And if everyone's prepared, then it gives all of us a a better chance of being helped out if we if we need it when we're out on the trail right so we would encourage everyone who is listening if you don't already hike to take up hiking because it's such a great way to explore our public lands and remember you know depending on where you live there are also hikes in national forests in state parks in regional parks etc yeah so get out there and do some hiking safely All right, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Um, Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for supporting us over on Patreon. Uh, Hopefully you've learned a few things in this episode. We learned a few things just doing the episode. Absolutely. Uh, We'll be back next week with our monthly mailbag episode where we have a lot of really great questions that we'll be answering. 
Thank you.